Hey everyone, Eric here. We're really excited about a new AI show from Turpentine called Autopilot, hosted by Will Summerlin. This podcast explores the adoption and rollout of AI in the industries that drive the economy and the dynamic tech founders bringing rapid scalable change to slow moving industries. From law to hardware to aviation, Will interviews founders backed by Benchmark, Greylock, YC, and more to learn how they're automating at the frontiers in entrenched industries. Click on the link in the description to subscribe to Autopilot. Because I would have spent more time learning interesting things about coding rather than setting up my coding environment and debugging very stupid, you know, syntactic mistakes. These are things that are honestly not intellectually stimulating about coding. And, you know, we're trying to get rid of them as soon as possible so that you can really focus on the creative process of writing software. Building large software still requires a lot of human effort. But allowing a lot of people to be creative will also expand dramatically the pool of good ideas that we explore as, you know, as mankind. Hello, and welcome to The Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas, and together, we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg. Hello, and welcome back to Replit Week on the Cognitive Revolution. For context on this conversation, if you haven't already, I definitely recommend checking out our most recent episode with Replit product designer, Tyler Angert. I spent 10 full minutes at the top of that episode explaining why I believe that Replit could become one of the most important companies in the world. Why I already consider it to be one of only 15 to 20 live players in the AI game globally today, and why, if I had to pick a single platform where the human AI collaboration economy is most likely to take shape, I'd pick Replit. I also posted a version of that essay on Twitter, and we'll put a link in the show notes. Today, we're going even deeper on the future of AI at Replit with special guest Michaela Katasta, Replit's new VP of AI. Michaela recently joined the company from Google and made an immediate splash by publishing a new AI manifesto that outlines Replit's plan to support the next billion software developers. They plan to do this by enabling a seamless human-computer symbiosis, creating an artificial developer intelligence that will create AI coding agents capable of developing complex software, plus a complementary economy that rewards human tool creators and hires humans for advanced problem-solving when needed. Michaela even proposes a new meaning for REPL. In place of the original read, evaluate, and print loop, which describes a traditional interactive computing environment, Michaela now unpacks the acronym to mean reflect, evaluate, percolate, and learn. These much higher order concepts are now the core feedback loop at the heart of the company's artificial development intelligence efforts. This is not just one of the biggest AI visions you'll hear from any company in the world today, but one of the most well-specified, coherent, and given Replit's track record for execution, one of the most credible as well. While it might sound like a GI, that is artificial general intelligence, Michaela believes that Replit's focus on code, which unlike natural human language, has been designed over decades to avoid ambiguity, and is also now supported by a wide range of quality assurance tools, will improve reliability enough to allow Replit to unlock huge value without needing to confront the most perplexing challenges related to potentially smarter-than-human intelligence. 
Now, to be honest, I'm not entirely convinced that this AGI-ADI distinction will prove as meaningful as Michele and team believe. And I will definitely be watching closely for new features designed to protect the next billion developers. After all, I've learned from experience training executive assistants in the art of AI task automation at Athena that the next billion developers will inevitably be very AI dependent. Still, I am convinced that Replit is a phenomenal platform for developers both seasoned and new, and definitely a company to watch, as the power of their product and the influence of their platform seem almost certain to continue to grow. As always, if you're finding value in the show, we would appreciate it if you'd share it with friends and post a review to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I also really appreciate your feedback, including guest and topic suggestions, which you can send either by email at tcr at turpentine.co or via Twitter DM, where I am at LeBenz and my DMs are open. I get a handful of very nice notes every week, and they really do influence the direction of the show. So please reach out. I would love to hear from you. Now, I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Replit's new VP of AI, Michele Catasta. Michele Catasta, welcome to the Cognitive Revolution. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to talk about Replit and AI today. Yeah, me too. Regular listeners to the show will know that I'm a big fan of the Replit platform, which honestly even predates the current you know, AI push, but that has also been a pretty exciting thing to see. I want to start with just a couple real big questions, and then we'll you know kind of come back and, uh, and ask some, some smaller, more detailed ones as well. But for starters, you guys have put forward this ambition, I think one of the most ambitious, that you call ADI, Artificial Developer Intelligence. So what is that? So that's our, I would say, midterm roadmap. Um, hopefully, it's not going to take us decades to accomplish that. And the idea is, we try to identify an attainable goal in terms of how we need to evolve our current AI Replit and to make developers much more effective. So the reason why we made a play on the name and made it different compared to AGI is I don't want to go on record ever trying to predict the date where AGI is going to happen. I think everyone agrees largely that it will happen, uh, but we're not interested in figuring out uh, in the next 20 years. What we care about is what can we deliver in the next few years to developers. And I think LLMs have built an amazing foundation to help developers be more productive. GitHub Copilot was a pioneer at that. And we have Ghostwriter and Rapid, which is helping you both to complete code. And we also have like a chat feature that helps you as a pair programmer while you're developing. I think this is all great. And we're getting a lot of amazing feedback from our users. But what we describe in that manifesto is how can we bring that, you know, a notch up to the next level? And the idea is we would love to really empower the next billion software developers in the world. People that don't have any computer science background, they're just, you know, amateurs, they land on Replit and they want to go from an idea to a prototype in the shortest amount possible of time. We need an AI to make that happen. And we need a more, much more powerful AI compared to what we have today. LLMs generate an amazing amount of semi-coherent code. Usually it's aligned with what the user wants. At times it has some mistakes, it has some issues. I think that's not a blocker for people that are really experienced developers, such as us. So I, I always know how to find my way out from a bug that you know GPT or Palm or other models are giving me. This is not the same for a person who has never written a line of code. For ADI is our vision of 
how can we make sure that through several different iterations, um, and I'm gonna go a bit more in detail what that means, eventually you reconverge towards the right solution that the user was asking for. The way in which we envision that is, there will always gonna be a fundamental generative component to that, which could be a much more powerful LLM compared to what we have today. Likely the field has been evolving at such a fast pace that I can only imagine what we're gonna have like say two years from now. So definitely they're gonna be more powerful, more independent, but Rapid has a key advantage of offering also an execution environment. Um, and you know, we've, we've been spending years building all that kind of platform. So now you can think of our feedback loop where an AI generates code, then we execute it. We also include back the feedback from the user. We include also all the errors that came from the execution. And then we learn from this initial step. We feed it back to an AI model, generate the code again, until we converge to something that actually runs and it is aligned to what the user wants. So this is our ambitious goal, as you defined it before. Hopefully it's not again, too many years away. I, I have a feeling that you know, maybe in a couple of years we can crack something pretty powerful. And we have, we have been working heads down towards this goal since I joined Rabbit. It's, uh, it's amazing how far you already are. I've been a user of the platform myself. And you know, I bring a certain amount of coding knowledge to it, but I'm, you know, there's much more that I don't that I don't know than that I do, of course, and that's really true for everyone. So you know, even for somebody who knows their way around, the built-in autocomplete and, and chat tools are really useful. But I've been kind of pursuing this, you know, myself. I'm, again, listeners will know I'm advising a company called Athena, which is in the executive assistant space. And, you know, we're seeing that you know, in line with your vision, right, about the next billion developers, we're kind of seeing that software is becoming the, much more permeable to non-software developers, much more accessible. And we're starting to use Replit and, and starting to teach what is ultimately coding, or at least it's like software development. But honestly, to people that have never even coded and don't know even the basics of coding, you know, like... And we skip, you know, the traditional stuff these days. We skip the for loops and the syntax and all that kind of stuff. And we just jump right into, here's this platform. You can start to talk to it and, and try to get it to do what you want to do. We actually do often have them go to GPT-4, uh, which is something that's pretty interesting because like for the top level request, obviously GPT-4 is still the, you know, the boss model and they need all the help they can get in many cases. So to get that kind of first skeleton, you know, we do often bounce out of the, the platform and, and go to GPT-4. But then once you're in it, you know, you start to, to iterate, especially more locally, a lot of the built-in tools really work well. And it's been amazing to see how quickly people can go from, as you said, kind of, you know, wandering in, not even expecting that they were going to be asked to code in this job, to being able to actually manipulate applications and and get somewhere. Like, it's crazy. It's only... 2023 and you know this is is starting to uh starting to happen i agree i mean it has been an exciting ride i would have never expected things to move this fast since we saw the first generating models based on transformers i i could see like the light at the end of the tunnel i felt it's it's about to happen it's bound to happen but who knew that the timeline would have been so compressed and um and now as a matter of fact as you're saying we see a lot of people that have never approached software in their life being very productive. Um, for instance, at Rapid, we host monthly hackathons 
And the vast majority of them are revolving around AI topics. And a lot of people that come there are not software engineers by trade. Um, we got amazing projects built by PMs who spend most of their time communicating with software engineers. And as a matter of fact, they're extremely good at prompting models because what do they do for a living? They put in English requirements and descriptions of how a software should work. So if you put them in front of GPT-4, they do an amazing job at describing exactly what they want. They get the output and Rapid helps them to stitch pieces together helps them to get a quick feedback loop in case there is a mistake in the in the code. And in turn, you can also have a model helping you to debug the code. And we have a debugger feature in Ghostwriter that does exactly that. When you execute your REPL and you hit a problem, you generate an exception, then immediately we try to tell you that's how you should fix it. And we have seen, you know, PMs winning hackathons just at their first experience writing code. And I, I think this is only going to be even more pervasive in the, in the near future. And yeah, I feel Revit is really enabling this wave uh, no, more than perhaps any other company out there. Yeah, Revit has is, is really done a lot of work in terms of teaching people to code in the traditional way. How close do you think you guys are now to a, a mode where you would say, forget that and let's go this PM route and then you can kind of fill in those you know, lower level details later? My dream is that we're going to go in that direction more and more. Of course, there are obstacles to that. Any AI is expensive, not only to train, but especially to serve when you have a lot of users. And I think right now we are, uh, we just went past the 24 million plus users at this point. So it's not an easy platform to deal with. And uh, whenever you're giving access to powerful models, you need to think also unit economics. That being said, the trend in AI and especially in other lands is that of a better economies of scale pretty much showing up every quarter. Uh, so I do see a future where at least some basic AI features will be accessible to any user. And that will radically change the way in which people write software today. And I um, that's a welcome change, to be fair. Like I, if I teleport myself back in time when I started to write code, when I was like very young. It was an extremely frustrating experience. I, I don't regret going through that. It was a lot of fun in hindsight. But uh, if I had Replit when I started, I would have loved it much more. And I think I would be much more advanced today because I would have spent more time learning uh, interesting things about coding rather than set setting up my coding environment and debugging very stupid you know, syntactic mistakes that I was doing because I didn't notice that I didn't close appearance or you know, I forgot a, a quote here and there. These are things that are honestly not intellectually stimulating about coding. And you know, we're trying to get rid of them as soon as possible so that you can really focus on the creative process of writing software. That is here to stay for a while longer. Again, I'm not going to make uh, you know, timeline estimates of when people are going to stop to write software completely. Uh, I do think that the creative process still has a place for a while longer, uh, but no one loves to deal with low-level, tiny mistakes in code. And yeah, and I, I'm... I'm happy to see that the new generation is writing, is learning to write code in a completely different way compared to how I did it. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. OmniKey uses generative AI to enable you to launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms with a click of a button. I believe in OmniKey so much that I invested in it, and I recommend you use it too. Use Cogrev to get a 10% discount. 
it really is something mind blowing to see. And by the way, it's the same even for for experts because I've seen like you know there are some notable tweets. I think Andre Karpati is saying, "I can't imagine uh, myself writing code without GitHub Copilot. I would easily waste like fifty percent of my productivity." And that's coming from a person that's been writing software for like as many years as I've been doing. He's a very prolific you know uh, researcher. They will not you know get rid of the new AI features in writing code. And I think soon this will be. Um, an agreement across every person who writes software. Yeah, totally. So you came, just for a little personal context on you, uh, recently from Google to Replit. And Google and Replit also have a significant partnership, which I think is multifaceted in terms of like investment and cloud and now even some product connectivity. Were you involved in that, in the creation of that partnership? Or were you just kind of, you know, separately attracted to Replit? I mean, I, I was I was involved to to an extent. Uh, I was there more like a, as a researcher, as middle management. So I'm definitely not the person who calls the shots about making such a you know big partnership happen. Uh, I was an internal champion for that. I was a big fan of Rapid, you know, even before I started to work there. And I was giving demos uh, of Palm to Amjad and his team back in the days because I was one of the contributors to the code skills of Palm, which we called Palm Coder back in the days. Uh, so I think that that was my first interaction with the Rapid team, more officially. And then I, you know, I stayed in touch with them. I unofficially advised them for a while, and then I became an advisor and then you know, all the way to joining them full time. So it was a slow cook. I, I would love to believe that I, I played a role to make that happen. Um, and you know, after I left, I'm glad that the partnership actually happened. And you know, it's, it's a great partner to have by our side. Rapid is a very resource-intensive company to run because we give compute to millions of users. So uh, it's something that we couldn't do on our own for sure. Yeah, that's interesting. I, that might be worth getting a little bit more into the weeds of. Before getting there, you know, it's in some sense you've just come from maybe the most formidable AI company in the world, certainly with you know, probably more top-notch researchers than anyone else, probably more publications than anyone else, certainly, you know, more resources, more compute. And you've gone to, I think, probably the smallest company that I have on my live players list at basically 100 people at Replit, right? So we're getting close to that, yes. So it's that small. (laughs) Close to, but still under 100, yeah. So how do you think about that? trade-off and kind of what should we be watching for? I mean, typically these new technology waves are, you know, startup favoring, but I've been pretty commonly of the opinion, you know, as I look at different markets that I think the incumbents are going to do really well in this case. And you're going from, you know, one form of strength to another. So how do you think about the the trade-offs in scale and resources? Yeah. So of course there is a trade-off. Uh, some things that I'm currently doing at Rapid will be maybe much easier if I attempted to do them at Google, just by the sheer amount of resources available in that company. At the same time, there is a and there is such a strong benefit in being lean and having less process and you know, being able to move fast and iterate faster and uh, you know, don't fixate perhaps on mistakes because they're considered a sunk cost. Uh, Rapid, you know, we can decide. This direction didn't pay off. Let's do exactly the opposite. Um, I I love it. It's a breath of fresh air. I don't think I belong long term into big tech. I'm I'm very grateful of the experience that I had. I met a ton of amazing people. As you said, the 
density of AI talent at Google is incredible. Um, but then at the same time, I, I feel, you know, at home being at Rapid because we can, you know, we have a very narrow focus and we're very much obsessed to give the best possible AI to our, to our developers. And it doesn't mean that we necessarily have to build uh, a team exactly as the one at Google Brain has. Uh, we, we can be complementary and the partnership in a sense helps us to make that happen because, you know, we get access to models and we get access maybe you know we can have discussions and we, we can help each other in the process and i think there is space for everyone there is space for incumbents and i'm glad that they're there because you know it, it would be uh short-sighted to claim that open ai and google haven't been changing the AI landscape thanks to the apis that they offer but then at the same time there is also space for startups that are capable of building new generations of products that an incumbent wouldn't be making a bet on um, you know, I like to use this example with Office productivity. I wasn't surprised to see that Microsoft and Google immediately integrated Gen AI in their Office productivity. And I wouldn't be going against that kind of product as a startup if the product looked exactly the same. As in, I wouldn't try to clone Google Docs with Gen AI because an incumbent would do that much better. Now, if you come up with an idea of a completely different way to edit slides or documents, which has Gen AI as a first-class citizen, that I would tell you, that's a very good company. That's something that will have its own space in the, in the market. And, you know, with Rapid, we kind of play the same game. We're building something that doesn't exist. We know that a lot of users want that. And, you know, we're going to keep building that with the help of the incumbents as well. Yeah, there's even a frame there where I would say, in some ways, while it's small, you know, in terms of headcount, in some ways, Replit kind of is an incumbent. And by that, I mean, you know, again, going back to teaching these EAs how to code without really teaching them how to code. When I was introducing Revlet to them, I was kind of like, it's going to be hard for you to understand how much better this is than the old flow of like having a local development environment and then having to, you know, keep your settings in sync and your Python, you know, environments all whatever. It's just a total cluster. Obviously, everybody who's experienced it kind of knows that. But if they haven't experienced it, I was like, to you, it's just going to feel like this is how it always naturally would have been and you'll never know the difference. So I think that, you know, in many ways, like the strength of the platform itself and just the, you know, all the provisioning and all of the infrastructure and all of the seamlessness that, you know, has obviously been created over time is puts Replit in kind of this unique position of being both small and in a meaningful way, having like, an existing technology mode that's super complementary to now an AI layer put on top of it. So I guess I don't mean to pitch the uh, business too hard, but as you can tell, I am definitely a fan of the of the product. I appreciate that. You know, I, I'm the same. Otherwise, it wouldn't be where I am today. Uh, but I, I agree with you. Like that's that's one reason that you know, drove my choice um, because I, I think that we have such a strong advantage in what has been built before I even joined the company uh, that you know, I, I think it's an amazing playground where to apply AI and where to evolve AI. That being said, I, I think as a company, uh, we always love to keep a low profile in a sense and not become complacent. So as much as I would love to believe, oh, we built something that is unique and is going to help us grow over time. Um, I, I love the fact that we still all feel the urgency of becoming better and growing and making our users happy. And um, it still feels as a small startup to an extent. Like I, 
I've been a co-founder in teams, much smaller teams, and it kind of, I feel the same urgency right now in a company that, by some Silicon Valley standard, you could consider it as a company successful, uh, but no one inside feels, oh, we made it. Uh, we all talk about, oh, we need another three years to do this and five years to do that. And uh, I love this kind of you know, long-term goals that we have in mind to grow and become better. So that maybe speaks to kind of the company's identity. And I wanted to ask a little bit about this because people refer to Replit in, in ways, you know, like I'm, in my case, on my list of live players. It's also appeared frequently on lists of like most EAC companies. So do you guys like identify as an EAC company? What, what does that mean to you? Do you want to wear that? label i don't know much of these things to be fair i'm more of a spectator on twitter rather than anything else i of course you know we're a tech company we are focused on ai we we love progress and you know we are providing a novel way of writing code to users so by definition we're a company driven by a will of contributing to the technological progress and, and we strongly believe that giving development capabilities to the next billion of people is gonna make the world better now i don't think any of us likes labels both as individuals and as a company as a matter of fact i think we have a web we web page for like the new hires where we say we are uh, apolitical um, like we don't take a stance on anything we, we love we love exceptional talent we love to work with people that are respectful and at the same time we respect any point of view um, so sure, like I'm, I'm sure that Amjad is um, interacting with some Yak people on Twitter, but you know, for for those of you who follow him, I think he's a uh, myself. I've been knowing him for more than a year right now. I wouldn't be able to give him a label. Uh, like he's, he's such a unique person in his own beliefs and in his own rational way of, of seeing the world that I, I just find him to be an inspirational leader in the company rather than a person that you know belongs to a certain uh, clique of people on Twitter. I wonder how that kind of apolitical, I mean, there's a lot of different takes on this, right? We've gone through waves over the last few years of like highly political, even activist discourse at a lot of companies, including big tech companies. I'm, I'm sure you, you know, were there for some of that. And then there's been this kind of movement away from that and saying like, okay, we're a startup. We want to focus on one thing and that's our mission. And we don't want to be political. And it sounds like for most things, that's probably kind of a pretty simple policy you know, relatively straightforward policy for a company like Replit. But then when it comes to AI, it's like kind of tricky again, because it is both core to the mission. And it's like, inevitably kind of becoming political. But also as people that are advancing the technology, like you obviously have real responsibility, you know, in the ways that you do that. And it would be easy for that to kind of bleed into the, the increasingly political, you know, discourse around AI. So how do you guys navigate that? Like, what is the internal AI discourse at Replit like? Yeah, I, I think that political and responsible are two not necessarily like parallel tracks. And in a sense, I'm not a big fan of the fact that, you know, politics bleed into AI. Uh, conversely, I would love us as a community to, to be very focused on, you know, at building responsible AI systems. I think that the fact that we partner, for example, with Google and that we work with OpenAI, and like we, we are surrounded by companies that I do believe are putting a certain amount of effort in that. No company out there is perfect. 
I think there is no playbook on how to do responsible AI today. I, and it doesn't mean that the researchers working on that are not delivering. It's more about, it's a new field. It's going to take us years to figure out how to do it correctly. If you think about social media, it has been around for 15 plus years at this point. I will argue that we haven't figured out still how to regulate that correctly and how to do it responsibly. So AI is much newer. AI is arguably way more powerful, especially in potential. Uh, so it's going to take us as mankind a while to figure out how to do it correctly. Now, as Revit, I think we are in a privileged position where, for instance, we don't generate text, we rather generate code. So some of the shortcomings about uh, having a model online that generates fake news, maybe they don't apply directly to us. We are not in the realm of like image generation and all the issues, you know, regarding, you know, using stock images uh, that are copyrighted. We don't do face detection. So um, I would say we dodge some of the hottest short-term issues about AI. Uh, I don't think we're not part of the discourse about AI because I think is not in our radar at the moment. Like we have way more grounded to planet Earth technical challenges to work on, you know, before we think of that. And again, like I'm glad that there are other institutes and other companies thinking about it. Uh, so the, the, the internal discourse that we have now about AI is mostly how do we make sure that, you know, our users are aware of what we do. And that's the reason why, for example, we even release our LLM as open source and we use an um, open source data set. So we try to be as transparent as possible when it comes to our AI features. Uh, by all means, I'm not claiming that everything we're doing is perfect, uh, but you know, by means of being as transparent as we can, we get a lot of feedback and we can correct course easily. Uh, so it's better than working in a vacuum at least, you know, like we know and we get to hear what people believe we do wrong and we try to fix that. So I think, yeah, responsibility is important to us. Uh, the political discourse, I don't think we even have the cycles to spend time on that right now. <laughs> like we, have, we have to put so much work on growing that and that would be, I think, a waste of time in the short term. You guys recently put out this state of AI development report. And one of the things that had that jumped out at me was the rise of Langchain, which we've talked about many times in you know, many different episodes. It is, I've, I've used it like, you know, moderately, but not like super intensively. Because uh, the biggest projects I've done actually got underway before Langchain. At the same time, it's taken a lot of heat recently online for being, I'm not sure, like people suddenly, like for a second, it seemed like it had flipped and it's not cool anymore. And I'm not entirely sure why. So I'd love to hear your comments on kind of Langchain in particular and that tool ecosystem um, in general and kind of how you would guide, you know, developers towards or perhaps away from certain tools. So first of all, I wouldn't guide anyone away from Langchain. I think it's such a fundamental uh, tool in the AI space right now that at the very least is interesting to follow. And I'm grateful you know, Arison and the whole team building it. I find it amazing that it's basically collecting most of the research uh, papers that come out. They also have an implementation on Langchain within 24 hours. Uh, so it's a it's a treasure trove, regardless of how much impact it has in production. Now, that being said, I think Langchain is going through the same life cycle of frameworks in general. I, I remember back in the days, you know, when we had the first powerful web frameworks such as Django and Ruby on Rails, uh, they were getting exactly the same heat in the sense that 
when you force or when you recommend a developer to work in a specific way, uh, some people will love that kind of mindset and they will be compatible with that. And so people will find it like completely uh, counterintuitive or they will hate the fact that debugging like chain is, of course, more um, challenging compared to debugging your own code. Uh, so it always comes with, with pros and cons. And that's the reason why, even as of today, if you want to write a basic web application, you probably have a choice of at least like the top 10 frameworks out there. And each one of them is good and each one of them is powerful. So LangChain is getting beat because it's probably the first one covering that space. I wouldn't be surprised to see a few more popping up in the, you know, in the next months. And I think that the code base, no matter how intricate it could be today, if, first of all, it can always improve. And again, we've seen this in other frameworks that maybe TensorFlow went through something similar, although TensorFlow 2 wasn't exactly a success story. But you know, even in deep learning, we have seen libraries coming out in version one, uh, collating all the feedback from users, and then the next big release is much better because the developers learn the best practices and the anti-patterns. So let's let's give some time to Arizona and the team to you know maybe make a next release of LangChain. But I think this is the nature of AI development today. Is early, is scrappy, and is gonna be headache-inducing. But that's also the reason why it's fun. I think it's a really great answer, great perspective, and I definitely would encourage everyone to follow the project at least, as you said. They are incredible. You might even call it Replit Speed. You know, they, they might coin their own LangChain speed. I've seen not once, not a few times, but a lot of times, as you noted too, where they very, very quickly implement some new scheme that somebody published, you know, in a research paper. And that's incredibly useful from a developer standpoint. Yeah, th that's making AI better as a field if you think about it, because whenever a paper comes out, there is always some doubts about you know how easy it is to reproduce are those results real or not and the fact that the implementation either sometimes the authors themselves build it in like chain so that it's easy for people to reproduce or someone in the community is going to take care of that like within a day that allows us to find out is that paper actually real or are those claims completely false um, and you know that helps us to make progress as a field so even if it doesn't have impact in production it's so valuable on the research side that again I'm glad that we have so many people working in AI today compared to even six months ago, literally. It's powerful. That it also just makes sense to me as to why I wasn't bothered by any of it, because I generally am fine to follow the framework. So, uh, you know, I'm, I think I'm in, the tar I'm in the framework target market, I guess. You had said, you know, with all these tools and especially all the AI tools, obviously, you know, the goal here is higher productivity, greater, you know, accessibility, more developers. As I understand your earlier comments on the ADI notion, it's like, we're not looking to replace developers, we're just looking them to give them, you know, a next generation set of tools that will make them much more productive. Do you have a sense for how much more productive we're talking about here? Like, are we talking 2x more productive? Are we talking 10x more productive? I will say the 2x has been already kind of accomplished by code completion. Uh, I think, you know, in the process of at least writing code, uh, Copilot has published some metrics where they make developers up to, I think, 55% faster. Um, we have something comparable within Rapid. We didn't publish the metrics yet, you know, but we see high acceptance rates from our model. Uh, so I would say the, 
the, the, the 2x threshold has been kind of reached. And also informally, I've seen, you know, several people tweeting about the fact that they will be wasting, you know, half of the time if they were not using um, modern code completion. Um, I think 10x is attainable, achievable, like in the in the next year or so. Um, and that's by means of adding like better ways of debugging code, uh, more agentic behavior. Uh, that's another you know, maybe direction that we can go more in depth later. Uh, but you know, this idea that you don't want to use an AI exclusively to generate blocks of code. You want an AI that comes up first of all, maybe with a plan of what you need, like in terms of architectural design. And then, you know, that can go ahead and in the scaffolding of a project and then gives you the basic implementation of everything that you need. And then as a developer, you know, you just put the finishing touches, you put some glue code, you make sure that the few bugs left are done. Uh, that I see easily giving you like a 10x improvement. Um, I think Amjad is, you know, having a few inspirational podcasts where he talks about the 1000x developer. So that's our North Star. Uh, which I think is going to take us a while. And the idea there is the moment uh, you have a model that can not only generate what you need, but can also orchestrate tools that are already available. And this is something that I explained in the ADI manifesto talking about at the beginning. Then all in a sudden you have like a group of developers that work for you. Like you can think of yourself as a tech lead. And then you have like basically the ADI below is a set of interns and like junior developers that can get tasks done immediately. So uh, if you know that you need a certain pipeline, you need to fetch data from somewhere, you don't have to write the code any longer. Maybe you have a tool in Rapid that does that, and the, the ADI knows, oh, I should be invoking that service, getting back the results, processing them in this way, and then bubble them up uh, to what the developer is writing. So that's the future that I believe will start to leave orders of magnitude improvements. But yeah, I think 10x is something that we should be seeing relatively quickly. The idea that agents are going to become more powerful and more independent, which is far from being an easy task. I'm feeling a little cognitive dissonance around kind of another billion developers, but also, you know, 10 to even a thousand times more productivity because I'm kind of thinking what it's, it's hard for me to even fathom, like how much software gets built, you know, or sort of what we would be all building in that scenario you know if we're if if we add another billion developers and make developers ten, just say just 10 times more right then we have like the equivalent of you know at least 10 billion current developers and that means we have more than one current developer productivity per person on earth do we even have like is there demand for all that software like what do you think taking the other, you know taking the other perspective like not thinking so much about the developer experience for a second but just kind of what does software even look like if there is more than one current human developer productivity per person available to be building stuff right no i mean that, that that's a great question i think it's hard to make a to make a good prediction about that you know but what i can tell you is Every person who today is using any kind of technology is spending quite a lot of time on tedious tasks. Um, and that's the reason why, for example, like you have shortcut on iOS that allows you like to chain in a row, like a few actions. Um, that's why like a lot of people do macros or functions on Excel spreadsheets. And that's why they're variable on Google Docs today. So you see these hints of programming languages and automation bubbling up in every 
widespread application. And the reason being, everyone who's a bit tech savvy will love to automate even further their, their life. So to me, having the next billion software developer doesn't mean that you know, 90% of them will be writing the new Langchain or the new Google or whatever it's going to be. It's more about, can we make programming so pervasive that it becomes um, like a useful skill for everyone? And I think there is a future for that. Like I've, I've seen people building like WhatsApp bots during some of our hackathons, you know, for very specific needs, like, um, you know, things that were ordering pizzas for a group of friends organizing a party. So rather than having to download applications and all the startups build that kind of niche product that is never going to have a powerful business model, you're going to build yourself, you know, the few niche things that you care about, you know, for yourself, for your family and for your friends. So that's the one, that's the horizontal growth that I'm talking about. So the one billion software developers. Now on the other dimension, like the vertical growth, how much a software developer can, you know, can become more productive. I think that multiplier, like especially the 1000X, doesn't apply to the uh, amateur person who's automating their life. It applies more like to the uh, John Carmack's of the world or the Jeff Dean's of the world, like people that are extremely skilled software developers. They manage very large teams in their lives. And all in a sudden, they are not going to need anymore a full org below them. You know, like I think Carmack was in meta for a while and Jeff Dean is probably managing as thousands of people reporting directly and directly over to him. I imagine replacing that or part of what they do on a daily basis with, a, with an AI and with an agent and with an ADI. Um, that's the kind of thousand X that we think of. And the goal is not to displace software developers, it's actually to make even more people capable of building big and great companies. So we would love to see fewer humongous companies and way more mid-sized startups that can tackle very challenging problems. If you think about it, that's going to be a big accelerating factor for mankind. I don't want to go back to the EAC, but that's the acceleration part that I'm excited about. And that's the reason why I've been doing research in this field and I want to pick products in this field, because it, it can really have an amazing net benefit for mankind if we crack this problem correctly. Yeah, I certainly see the billion-fold opportunity in kind of last mile customization and integration of different things. That's honestly, I think, a big part of what the EAs at Athena will end up doing with a platform like Replit is they're going to kind of say, and I, I'm, I'm developing all these mantras, one of them is copy and customize. And Replit obviously is, you know, perfect uh, platform for that, where, you know, the goal is to find a good starting point template fork it, make it your own. And a lot of times those things where you're making it your own are not conceptually complicated. It's just like, I use this, you know, messaging app, and I want it to trigger, you know, a certain thing when a certain thing happens or whatever, or I use this task tracker, or I use, you know, this uh, database or spreadsheet, you know, whatever, right? I mean, there's all these kind of, everybody has their own kit. And there's not really a great way to bring those things together in some universal sense, although Zapier certainly, you know, and others kind of try. But even then, you got to like make the Zapier work. So that part definitely makes a lot of sense to me. I guess I'm reminded of, we had um, Flo Crivello on, actually, at one point, I think on the same episode as Amjad earlier, and then also he did his own. And he talks a lot about this like single use 
software paradigm where he holds up an aluminum can and he's like, when Napoleon was alive, you know, he was the only guy that could drink out of aluminum because it was so special. And now we just throw it away. Is that kind of how you're in? Am I in line with your vision here of just software kind of just spinning up in little throwaway moments all around us? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's exactly what, what we want. And uh, in a sense, also, we want to empower the creative process of software, not the excruciating aspects of developing complex software, because that for a while longer, it will be still the responsibility of larger companies. It will require process, it will require management, it will require PMs, DPMs, and so forth. So building large software still requires a lot of human effort. But allowing a lot of people to be creative will also expand dramatically the pool of good ideas that we explore as, you know, as mankind. Um, so I think you know the, the analogy that you were bringing before from Jad and you know drinking from an aluminum can makes makes a lot of sense. So as I hear you describe that future, I guess it seems to me like there's some sort of implicit assumption where, for context, I kind of would describe the the state of play today as AI has become better than the average person at a random task, and certainly that includes coding, right? AI compared to person off the street, AI is going to dominate in code. And AI is closing in on expert performance where there's a pretty well-established protocol of what you're supposed to do. So things like answering medical questions, when the answer is pretty well-established and you as a doctor are supposed to know, then the AI is also getting like really good closing in on doctor level for just like answering the question in the right way. And then there's this kind of third tier of like the real human genius or creativity of coming up with the spark of a new idea, whether that's, you know, a scientific hypothesis or an application concept or whatever. That basically, I don't see AI doing anywhere as of now. And it seems like your model underlying, you know, your expectations underlying a lot of what you're saying are like, it levels out before we get there. Am I interpreting that correctly? It seems like you're, we already can do the basic stuff. You want to enable like closer to expert so that, you know, obviously it can be more and more useful, but you're just not expecting that third tier of breakthrough where AIs like actually drive creative process. Correct. That's exactly why we call it ADI and not AGI. Uh, the reason is the creative process you, you talk about for me is still exclusively in the realm of uh, human intellect and being able of having an AI that designs and thinks of the next line chain, for example, that to me means that we are capable of building an AI that is as smart as a human or even smarter. I don't care about when that happens. <laughs> if it happens one year from today, of course, it's going to change drastically the way in which rapid looks like but it will be accessible to everyone, most likely. So it will not disrupt only rapid. It will disrupt every single company in the world. It will be like a, a disruptive factor for the whole mankind. But whatever is the timeline for AGI, um, there is this interim solution where, as you said, we level out, we help as many developers as possible to, gain, uh, to be more efficient on basic skills. But then the creative process is still, you know, something that only humans can do. And one example I always use when people ask me, 
shall I drop out from my computer science uh, degree because maybe there's not going to be a job for me in the future? And the answer I give is we still need people coming up with the design of the next library and the next programming language. So if you think about it, what we've been doing in the last you know, 60 plus years in computer science is literally thinking of new abstraction layers. We were working with punch cards and then assembly and then C, and then we started to do operating system kernels and libraries and web frameworks. So every time there is a new paradigm shift that has been humans working together, learning from the anti-patterns and the pain points of how we're writing software today, and then coming up with the next, we do that. And AI can learn how to do things as we write code today. We can't think of how we're going to be writing that in two years. So that is still something that humans have to work on. And it's great to me that if we reduce the amount of tedious tasks that we have to be working as developers, then everyone can focus on how can we make things better compared to how they are today. So this is the, the dream that we have. You know, that's the reason why the, I would say the AI for code field exists, is to make sure that we can put our brain cycles on something more um, you know, more interesting than just writing code as we do today. Just to make sure I understand your uh, your outlook, it sounds like you're not by any means like ruling out that there could be this next advance such that oh my god now AI can drive creative process. You're you're not ruling that out. It doesn't even sound like you're saying it's particularly unlikely. You know, as, as you said, hey, maybe it could happen next year, but it's basically just like nobody has any idea what to do about that. So we just kind of plan for a more normal scenario because that's all we really can plan for. And I mean, normal can still be pretty weird, but it's like near human level developer would be transformative in and of itself. But that's kind of the most transformative future you can plan for. And so that's what you focus on. Correct. Like AI has a history of going through like hype cycles and winters. And I think like in the early 60s, uh, Marvin Minsky wanted to hire a summer intern uh, for them to solve completely vision. We're talking about 60 plus years ago, and that problem was considered to be trivial. And then it took us literally 60 years to have like, models that are powerful enough to match the vision that uh, Minsky had. I, it would be, uh, I would say, ill advice for me as a person leading the IT in rapid to say, oh, Let's just work on AGI because it has to happen in the next two years. And that's the only reasonable path for us to make. Uh, if I have to think about the probability distribution of events, all my probability mass is on AGI can happen and we can build it and we can bring benefit to our users. And if in the low light view that AGI happens before us, we're going to adapt. We're going to be there. Like We're going to keep our eyes open. We're deeply entrenched in the AI community regardless. So, but we're going to be hearing about it because I think people are not going to be talking about anything else across the world, to be honest, when it happens. Uh, but in the meantime, it's much more realistic to say, uh, I'm glad that people are working on more uh, long-term problems. And in the meantime, let's focus on something that I feel we can actually do. Where, where I come out on that, just put my cards on the table, is like, I don't think we should necessarily continue hyperscaling orders of magnitude beyond what we have. Because I can't rule out that it might, you know, that it, a sufficiently powerful system might pop out of there to be like truly very, very disruptive. And I would rather give us a little more time to, you know, get used to what we have and implement it and, you know, enjoy our um, AI coding assistance 
before we, you know, kind of say, hey, what happens if we scaled up another thousand X, you know, more training compute? Where do you come out on that? Like, what? I mean, there's multiple different questions, but before we even get anything like regulation or whatever, just like, what would you advise if you were saying, you know, hey, Sam Altman, like, do it or don't do it? You know, do you feel like if they do that, we are at some risk of crazy disruption or you feel like it's not? It's, it's, it's more, that's more just kind of speculative than anything. First of all, given that I'm not a person who studied these topics in depth, um, my, my, my answer, you know, should not have a lot of weight. So I, I will just express what is my opinion. But, you know, I trust much more people who have been studying this for several years. I'm, I'm far from being well-informed person on like responsible AI and, and all the different issues related to that. Uh, that being said, I think that no matter what is our opinion, the scaling will happen. I think, you know, there have been letters signed by several influential people and the progress hasn't slowed down at all. Uh, we know that even startups at this point have enough capital to build exceedingly large H100 clusters. Like inflection is one of them. They just announced how big you know, their infra is going to be. Uh, so I think it's pointless to talk about how can we stop that. It's more important to pour our energies on Okay, once and if that happens, how can we be ready? How can we make sure that you know, nothing goes in the worst possible way? Uh, I might be naive, but I tend to be macro-optimistic about mankind uh, in the sense that eventually, no matter how many you know, fault players are there and no matter how uh, weird behaviors we experience in our history timeline, eventually it seems that as mankind will always find a way to survive and thrive. So I do hope that, you know, even when AGI happens, we're going to be driven by, by common sense. I think some of the doomsday scenarios that we have been, you know, hearing through mass media and Twitter are possibly just detrimental. I don't think it's worth to talk about them. They just give even more fear to people. And we, we, we came out from like two plus years of pandemic fear. And now we just reached to the AGI fear. It's not helping anyone, to be fair, to to be that that pessimistic. I think it you know it, it's important to think of ways to mitigate that in case it happens. But I wouldn't go around and get on the news and talk about nuclear bombing data centers. That doesn't seem to be like a healthy way to start a good discourse. <laughs> yeah, and I do agree that that was probably um, unfortunately phrased at the uh, at the best. Even though I'm fairly sympathetic to some of the uh, the argument, but the when you get into airstrikes territory, it does doesn't do much for discourse. I'm afraid. <laughs> exactly, and you know, I think I'm glad that there is discourse going on regardless. Like I, I I've seen people, you know, on both sides starting to have debates and you know maybe softening their points of view from from both hands, and I think that's the kind of discourse that is going to lead to to progress. And, you know, to us being ready as mankind for that event to happen. I think any extreme point of view, I think historically it never helped. Uh, so I, I wouldn't over-index on the extremes for sure. Okay, cool. Well, let's return then to uh, some nearer term concerns. I wanted to just give you uh, a chance to kind of talk about, in a sense, like what, you know, has you excited about Replit's future? But also there's this constant debate around, you know, who has moats in the AI space? What do moats look like? I just spent three minutes thinking, like, what are some moats that I see in the case of Replit? One we already talked about is just having the incredible infrastructure 
they already have. And, you know, that even extends to like multiplayer mode. Um, when I tell the assistants, by the way, you can jump onto my thing right now and start helping me code in the environment that I'm in. Here's the link. You know, again, I don't think they appreciate how much that they're not even as mind blown as they should be, um, you know, because to them, it just feels like, okay, that's something I can do. But yeah, historically, you know, people who've done this for longer would be mind blown. User feedback seems like another significant one. Like nobody is getting, I, I would only identify two companies, Microsoft and Replit, that are getting the kind of inline, you know, frequency and volume of user feedback that you guys are getting today. Let me correct you there. I think we get even more than Microsoft. We have way more telemetry. Uh, like VS Code is not logging at the level that we do. Of course, because we are running in the cloud and everything is running on our backend, while VS Code is, is a mostly a client-based experience. Uh, so I would say there are two companies that have the data. One is Google, because they run their own internal IDE that looks very similar to Replit as a concept. And, and there are some papers that explain how the architecture looks like. And the other one is Rapid, but with a much larger user base. So that is a data set that I'm extremely proud of, and I can't wait to show models train on the data that we collect. So a third one I was going to say is community. And then within that one, maybe I'll ask a question around like, is Microsoft not logging like what co-pilots are completed? It's, it's not for technical reasons, right? It must be more a matter of like licensing or positioning or sort of how they're relating to the customer. They do log, of course, you know, copilot interactions, and that's that's how they can track so many interesting metrics in the blog post that they publish. My point was more the fine-grained uh, interaction that we capture, such as literally keystrokes. Uh, like we have, we have the complete edit history of what to do in the editor. So not at the level of commits, but the, at the level of keystrokes. Um, and that is something that uh, VS Code, to my understanding, unless like you install additional extensions, um, Microsoft is not snooping the code that you're writing on VS Code because that, that would be a, a, a PR nightmare for them in case it happened. Uh, but we do because we offer features such as uh, history and rolling back and we have multiplayer support. So we need to make sure that we can reconcile edits coming from different users. And that's, that's how we, you know, we have to maintain all, all that additional data pipeline. So it's, it's very unique data that one day we plan to uh, pour into an AI model and give it back to the users. Yeah, that history feature is pretty cool unto itself. It's even really more than like a Google Docs. It's kind of a playable history of everything that you've done in the, in the environment. And it's another one of those things that feels like, man, why wasn't it always that way? So it's quite a few of those that Replit has, uh, has managed to create. But go, so going back to the community, then you mentioned kind of you know it could be a PR nightmare for Microsoft if they're like logging all your keystrokes. I mean, obviously they have enterprise customers. Revolt's coming at it from a totally different user base, where you know people sort of maybe more assume that like they're using a web app and that data is going to get logged. But how do you think about the like the relationship between the platform and the community? Obviously, you have the marketplace for bounties as well, and that you know, could even be said to be like the perfect input output pair for a random user doesn't know much, you know, asks for this, and this is the code that they got. Uh, so I see these kind of, you know, compounding data set advantages. But how do you think about yourselves relating to the developer community? What rights should developers have? This could be, you know, specific to Replit or in general, 
there's, you, know, you guys are kind of, I'm sure, training on open source software and there's lawsuits around that. But then there's also like, how should I think about if I'm trying to create something original of value on Replit? Do I have an opt out? Should I have an opt out? You know, my stuff is going into the next generation of model. Like, does that, should I feel like that's taking from me in some way? Or like, what do you think the terms of that engagement and relationship should be? Totally. So we were working on an opt-out feature. Uh, it's going to be in our documentation very soon. I, I will send you a tweet when, when it's up and running. Uh, you're totally right that we are training only on permissively licensed code. Uh, so we, you know, we didn't want to make the original mistake that Copilot did. I, I think it's a, it's a gray area, like from a legal standpoint, especially if you are in the US, then there is, you know, you can follow the fair use and that will in theory, allow us to keep training models and perhaps those lawsuits are not going to go much further because of that. In practice, I think it's way more important for us to be correct towards our users. So we're going to be listening to them. Uh, I think until now, we haven't received any pushback. And again, with the opt-out feature, we, we think that we're going to be making it right for some people that want to make sure that their code doesn't end up in the model. By the way, we only train on code that is public or rapid. So if your if your repo is private, we don't even touch it. Um, and the rationale there is, if you are keeping something private, you know, then you might have good reasons why. And then, of course, we don't want our models to to be trained on that. Now, I don't think that's uh, the end of it all. I think you know we're moving to ways of attributing contributions to users that are more advanced. Uh, so I, I think you've seen in Bard, for example, that you know they give you uh, links to the uh, snippets of GitHub code that contributed to what Bard has generated. So we're we're going to be moving to that model in the future. And I think the best way for us is really to follow the discourse and um, see what's going to become the industry standard. We want to be like a beacon in terms of how we treat our users, our developers. Uh, so we were going to try to adopt those features as soon as possible. And then if the lawsuits go in such a way that will change our mind, then you know, we're ready to adapt. Um, but as of now, I think you know, we're trying to follow what's considered a good practice. Uh, that, that being said, you know, if you want my, my personal opinion, I do think that the landscape will change as it's changing for image generation. And I think like stable diffusion was like the igniting factor to start the discourse. And, you know, maybe there will, of course, there will be lawsuits and there will be like even more debates. And perhaps in a few years from today, we're going to be finding what is the right balance between giving attribution and still training such models. Um, I would love to see a model where if training data created by user contributes to a lot of code completions or generations, then we find a way to share part of the revenue with that user. It's far from easy to be built. I think it requires like a lot of infrastructure, both on the AI side and on the payment side. Uh, but that's, you know, one idea that I was briefing with, uh, with Anjad back in the days. And, you know, perhaps, you know, one day we're going to be able to, to make that happen. I don't know if that would qualify as an interpretability complete uh, problem, but it's close probably, right? It is close, yes, because like, a lot of common code patterns will appear pretty much everywhere. So what do you do in that case? You know, how can you attribute it to the first person who came up with that? Or is it too trivial that it should not even be attributed to anyone? Uh, so it's 
it's a very hard problem to to solve. And you know what we do is we we keep an open mind, we read papers, we discuss with the community, and I, I think we all have to adapt in a sense. Like companies have to adapt, developers will adapt as well because you know there is progress going on. Uh, it, it was the same in, in a sense what happened with the open source movement, like back in the you know, Linux days, uh, was also another disruptive event. And some people loved it, some people hated it. So I'm sure this thing will happen here uh, with AI for developers. So one thing that you guys have obviously also made some news on, but which is not apparently something you think of as a competitive advantage is training custom models. Or maybe you could correct me, but you're training them, you're open sourcing them. It doesn't seem like you view the models as any sort of secret sauce or kind of you know core uh, defensible IP. So with that in mind, I guess I'd love to hear a little bit about how you guys think about training them in the first place. Like, why do it? You know, why not just use somebody else's? Um, if it's not something you, you know, feel the need to ultimately own? Is it a data set issue? Is it, you know, just the desire to show off, which honestly, you know, might be good enough reason? Yeah, tell me about why create and open source these, um, these original models. Of course, you know, showing off or more like proving that you know we're capable of doing that and we have those skills in house definitely helps because you know it helps us to talk with a lot of people in the AI community who then ended up maybe joining us or deciding you know to to help us in the future. So um it's important you know for a company not to just talk about AI but rather to prove that they can do it. So that was a way for us to you know let us stand out. Uh, that being said, Rapid is a Great success story built predominantly on open source software. And we love open source at Rapid. The vast majority of things we use and the projects we rely on, we either donate back to them or we do like a lot of upstream contributions. So Rapid wouldn't exist if open source wasn't such a thriving community. So we felt the moment we decided to work on our models, uh, we, we almost felt compelled to give back. And it came almost as a no-brainer discussion. I mean, I wouldn't say that it took us half a day to make the decision. Like, of course, we talk about it a bit internally. But at the end of the day, there was like a complete agreement that it was the right move for us to make. Now, I don't think that means that we don't see any competitive advantage in the models. As a matter of fact, we, we released the baseline model, which is trained on an open source data set. You know, we were grateful for the big code project to have open source the stack which is a permissively licensed data set extracted from github but the model that we today use in production is a combination of that data set and then it's a further pre-training done on rapid data uh, which is only accessible to us of course like we're not going to be releasing uh, our users data sets uh, our user code basis and that model comes with a pretty substantial performance improvement compared to the base one. You know, depending on the language, we have been seeing all the way even to up to 50% improvement compared to the base model. So that's not the way, you know, we kind of reconcile uh, the two aspects. Um, on one end, it's great to give back to the open source community, and we got a lot of cool projects built on that. Honestly, more than we ever expected. And then at the same time, you know, we built our own custom model that is in production since early, May, if I recall correctly, and he's been doing great. And yeah, I remember there was another uh, sub-question that you asked, which is, why did you even do it? Why don't you use third-party models? We had in mind a very specific trade-off, as in we had a fixed point in terms of latency. 
we want to model, you know, say, um, most of the response we want to give them back in 200, 250 milliseconds. That's the threshold that appears to be basically instantaneous for a human. So we had to work with a certain model size, given the GPUs that we had available uh, a couple of months ago. And we decided, okay, given that we want roughly a 3 billion parameters model, can we squeeze the best possible performance out of a small model uh, so that we give a different experience compared to Copilot? You use Copilot, so you know that usually the latency there is at least one second. And our users love the fact that maybe we generate shorter completions, but they're much faster. So we wanted to build the best possible model for that use case. It wasn't available open source, and you know we we took the challenge and we made it happen. How much of a hassle is that? I know that you have worked for at least some of these projects with Mosaic ML, another recent uh, guest. How much of a lift, you know? And and if you are a uh, like, I think a lot of people listening here, you know, probably work at companies that are like trying to figure out what they're supposed to do. And I think for most of them. Certainly, pre-training their own custom model is not going to be the thing. Fine-tuning is more in play for most, but even honestly, for a lot, they don't even need that. And then, you know, in some cases, they just need to like set up a vector database and you know and get a chat running against it. But how it seems like it's getting pretty accessible to do these pre-trained things if you have the data and the need. What was your experience like working with Mosaic to actually go through this whole process? Yeah, Mosaic was a great partner for us. I don't think we would have even dared to work on that project with such a short timeline if we didn't have them, you know, uh, covering our backs and giving us access to their infrastructure. So the, um, the, the truth is, training an LLM today uh, still requires quite a lot of engineering lift uh, when it comes to like orchestrating several different nodes and GPUs. Uh, writing the the right training um, you know framework to build your model, uh, doing a lot of ablation studies to find out you know the right architecture, the right upper parameters, and so forth. So, in the last few months, it's true that we've been seeing quite a lot a lot happening in the open source world. But as you said, the vast majority of progress we see in open source is about fine tuning, fine tuning, and instruct tuning. And all of those tasks can usually be accomplished with a couple of consumer-grade GPUs. Way fewer companies and people are training from scratch models. Um, so to attempt that task with a very small team, in my case, we're basically two people and a half working on this for uh, a sprint of 10 days before we release it and maybe a couple of weeks before doing ablation studies. That happened only because we had uh, access to Mosaic infrastructure and also quite a bit of back and forth uh, with, uh, with the engineers and the researchers there who helped us a fair share during that process. So your job was largely define what good looks like and assemble the data, and they kind of handle babysitting all the GPUs, orchestrating, obviously, and also that kind of hyperparameter expertise? So yeah, largely we work on, on our hand, we work on data collection, curation, and a lot of ablation studies with smaller uh, model sizes. And then Mosaic app does, we you know, with their software framework that orchestrates multiple nodes. Um, we mostly babysat the run ourselves in the sense, you know, we were 
in front of Wilson Biases 24 7, uh, seeing if something was going wrong. But then, you know, when, when we hit a snag or when we maybe were some harder failures, then, you know, the Mosaic people were on call pretty much as us, like 24 7. It was like a pretty, pretty amazing uh, team effort that we did together. And yeah, we shared a lot of notes, for example, on, um, you know, what was the best learning schedule that you use for this model size. And, you know, we made different choices, for example, compared to the models that they use open source. So depending on how much you want to personalize the model, you can go all the way to like a white globe service where you put data in a bucket and you ask Mosaic or other similar companies to do the training for you. But then you get something not customized to your needs. Uh, for Rapid, we train our own vocabulary. Uh, we had a different architecture. We, you know, we, we, we came up with a different even training schedule in terms of like how many times we repeated the data, how many epochs we did on the code data set that we used. So it was kind of an uncharted territory to an extent. And that's why it was a lot of fun. You know, I felt I was doing research and product at the same time, you know, and that, that, that was a fun process. Yeah. I love that about AI right now. The, the, the blurring of research and development uh, and productization is is super fun for me. Yeah, people ask me, "Do you miss doing research at Google?" I said, um, "You know, I'm, I'm maybe I'm not doing that full time, but I still do a lot of cool stuff." Any highlights that you would give? I mean, it's it's interesting right off the bat that you trained your own vocabulary. That essentially means you have your own tokenization scheme, right? So we we just did an episode with a a woman named Lily Yu from Facebook who was the author on the Megabyte paper where they're kind of trying to get rid of tokenization altogether. Yeah, I saw some of the allies of that talk. It was amazing, yeah. I don't think the Transformer is the end of history, you know, as it currently stands. That was definitely a big takeaway. But so any any kind of notable details that you would want to highlight there and, you know, any big differences between your tokenization scheme and kind of what people are used to or any architectural decisions that you think people would find particularly interesting? Two key insights. The first one is we, we went with a smaller vocabulary, which, by the way, is the same size as the first Llama release. Honestly, I'm still too reading detail of the Llama 2 paper. I, I, would, I would be surprised if they went for a larger vocabulary. But uh, anyway, a smaller one comes with a price of slightly worse compression in exchange of better inference speed. And again, given that our model is optimized for being in production rather than benchmarks, uh, we made that design choice of work going with a smaller vocabulary. Can I just ask how big the vocabulary is? Oh, sure. It's uh, 32K. So solid gold magic carp is right out. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, GPT-3 um, for a while had like a 50K vocabulary. GPT-NeoX, you know, there's a rounded ballpark. The 3.5 Turbo and 4, I think they all have a 100K vocabulary. So that's why we start to say that a token is usually around four characters with the kind of vocabulary size that we use for the rapid model is roughly three characters per token. So slightly worse compression in exchange of faster inference, but also we specialize our vocabulary on code. We train it on a exclusively code dataset. And that means that specifically on code, it achieves a better compression rate. So what you what you will miss as a whole if you use that vocabulary for a standard natural language dataset, in reality you gain that back when you work exclusively with code. Um, and again, we could make all these choices because we knew exactly that the model was meant to do one thing and one thing only. So we're not building a generic LLM; we're building one specialized to code completion. How do you think about kind of 
the world knowledge that underlies a lot of programming tasks. So one thing that I've tried, for example, is write me a tic-tac-toe game in you know JavaScript or whatever, right? If I go to, and obviously that assumes or requires that you know tic-tac-toe, wouldn't know what it is and what the rules are and you know have that kind of, maybe there's enough tic-tac-toe demos out there that that kind of finds its way into a coding set. But you can imagine a lot of things like that where there's general knowledge assumption in the program, you know, specification that a code-only data set probably doesn't have because that stuff doesn't make it all the way into the code itself, I guess, in a lot of cases. How do you think about it? I mean, that, that starts to go from the like ADI to AGI kind of a little bit as well. But how do you think about the, the world knowledge that you do or don't want to bake in? So I think small models showcase a certain degree of world knowledge. Uh, out of curiosity, we run basic uh, natural language benchmarks on the rapid model. And it turns out that it was, on some of them, even competitive with Llama 7B, which is a much bigger model. Uh, especially these self-contained benchmarks that didn't require a lot of external knowledge. They were more based on basic reasoning skills. And the reason is we know for a fact that when you train a model on code, the reasoning performance improves quite dramatically. So far from being a model that doesn't know how to do anything except code, but of course, it lacks several skills compared to much larger models. And this, we're very much aware of that. You know, we never claimed the opposite. It was more like out of curiosity, we tried to test our code models completely clueless about anything else. And the truth is, no, like they can do some basic tasks and that, you know, they have a, um, they, I think I'm just trying some like theory of mind uh, prompts that, you know, where became common with GPT-3 and it was doing a pretty decent job also then. So, Scaling, perhaps, is one of the ingredients required to do much better at world knowledge. And I would say also retrieval of multi-generation seems to be making the difference there because no matter what is the information cut off of a model, uh, you will always be lagging behind compared to you know, the, the, the present. So it's important to have a way to inject information at, in, in the prompt uh, to make sure that the model knows as much as possible. But um, yeah, I think... Scaling seems to be the main ingredient to make that happen today and to, uh, to have new skills emerging. At that model size, we know for a fact that a lot of skills are going to be lacking. But again, that's the beauty of specializing a model. You know the trade-offs you're making and you know what you get in exchange. Yeah. That's, we did it also to show that not necessarily all the effort should be in the mega models. We're glad that people do that because we use them. But there is also space for smaller ones optimized to a specific use case. And you will presumably have like a whole suite over time of, you know, various sizes for... They're coming. Yeah. <laughs> We're working on them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, watch this space. So just a couple final topics uh, that I wanted to touch on. One is kind of returning to this notion of safety. And I, now I'm approaching this in a more kind of mundane way, you know, safety for the user, safety for the platform, safety for, you know, other users. I know that you guys are making progress. I'm, you know, uh, uh, sometimes amateur, sometimes, you know, uh, official red team enthusiast. And so I've tried asking just about every code gen AI to write me a denial of service script. Results vary. Uh, even on Replit, results have varied. In May, when I did that, it just did it. 
you know, no hesitation, wrote me a denial of service script. And I was like, hmm, this doesn't seem great. Um, I tried that again this week, and it no longer does it. It now refuses to write a denial of service. And I haven't gone, you know, all the way into, can I jailbreak that or not? But I'd love to hear kind of how you guys are working on that dimension, because clearly you are. Do you have a, you know, a standard process that is specifically dedicated to you know, avoiding, you know, harmful code? Is there a sort of standard battery of tests that you measure these sorts of things against? I'm sure you have standard tests for performance, but like, is there a, a kind of safety specialist, you know, wing of that? Uh, do you have a red team process? What's the, uh, what does that aspect of the development look like? Yeah, we still don't have our red team process by means of how small is our team, unfortunately. So like we, we need to make some some choices regarding that. That being said, we, we rely mostly on, on third-party providers to, to make this happen um, because I, I believe you know that they're going to have more cycles and more resources to do a better job than we would be currently doing on our own. So that's the reason why you see progress being made. And that's the same kind of progress you see being made today between GPT 3.5 March versus the June release. Um, you know, you have been seeing a lot of rumors on Twitter, I'm sure, about how the models have been further lobotomized and then OpenAI replying that this is not the case. And I think there is this interesting distinction between the skills of a model and the behavior of a model. So the underlying skills and capabilities are still the same because the base model is exactly the same. What changes is how the model behaves given a prompt of the user. And while back in March, for example, they were a bit more casual replying to you and giving you like a DDoS script. Uh, now in June, the behaviors are different because the RLHF or the, you know, in the case of Anthropic, the, you know, the responsible AI approach that they use um, has been evolving over time. And I think every company is doing that. Um, it's hard to come up with the correct solution to anything. I don't think anyone sees our LHF as the silver bullet that is going to solve the issue as a whole. But you know, at least you can see progress being made. Uh, more interesting now, Llama 2 has been released and is heavily our LHF, as you might have seen yourself you know, from the demos online. Um, I believe a lot will be also discovered there, as in, there will be behaviors that are aligned with how we expect the model to uh, to behave. And then there will be behaviors that are completely misaligned and people will find ways to jailbreak it and people will find ways to prompt it in such a way that you will you know, reply horrible things. That's the nature of the beast. <laughs> and it's it's still hard to tame in a perfect way, but I think you know, we're all working towards uh, making that better and safer. So, well, first of all, when you want to start that red team uh part of the company, yeah, give me a call. We'll do it. Perfect. <laughs> if I understand correctly, like you had a custom model in May and you have another seemingly updated custom model now, or are you, have you added a sort of intercept layer? Because what I was assuming had happened was you'd updated the model, added some more refusal training, and now it's refusing, but maybe it's different than that. So our custom model right now is mostly used on code completion. Uh, I believe what we were using was Ghostwriter Chat, uh, which is using third-party models right now and some additional you know, prompting and retrieval that we do on our hand. So we, we try to make prompting on our side more robust, but um, 
there are also underlying behaviors of the models that we use that are changing. And, you know, we work with Google, we work with OpenAI. So, like, depending on uh, which side of the A-B testing you're on and, you know, the kind of changes that we allow the week, you might see as slightly different behaviors. Um, so that is definitely not going to be stable uh, in the near future because we we don't like to rest. You know, we, we, we always try to, to find ways to make it better. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's a fundamentally hard problem. So, like, I... I ask our users to be patient about the progress there because it's something that no one has cracked in the community yet. So uh, likely, Rapid is not going to be the first one to crack that specific problem. For all the complaining that goes on about the models refusing to do stuff and being kind of chiding and annoying, I think that's actually a huge advantage for the open AIs and Anthropics of the world that specialize in it because relative to like, having to manage that myself if I'm going to go use Llama or whatever and, you know, fine tune it to my ends. I want to kind of ride in their wake, you know, of all the work that they're doing. And it's really interesting that you guys are also doing that, right? I mean, probably a lot of people should update their thinking on how excited they should be to go adopt the latest open source model based on the fact that Replit is still using commercial models in their, you know, in their production product. Yeah, I think there is space for, like, similarly to before we were saying there should be space for incumbents and startups, I believe there is space also for open source model and models exclusively offered by companies. And, you know, each one of them would find their best application area. I don't believe that we should all be using the big boss model GPT-4 everywhere, not only because it's so traditionally expensive today, but also because it doesn't have it doesn't solve every single use case out there in the best possible way. So that's that's why I'm excited to see progress being made both by open source and by OpenAI and by Google and Trump and so forth. You mentioned the economics a couple of times. Can you give a rough picture of kind of what users cost you or how you think about, you know, what users cost you? I've priced this out a bunch of different ways in, you know, in, even in looking at like, what is the wattage of an A100 and an H100? And, you know, what does that cost, you know, given my kilowatt hour price and that kind of stuff. But I think everybody kind of ends up having a little bit of a different cost profile that re- seems to relate mostly to the workload and kind of how, you know, a lot of idiosyncrasies of the workload. At the scale you're operating at, I imagine you have a pretty good sense of like what the workload is going to look like hour by hour, one day to next. Maybe that's optimistic of me but how do you guys think about and you can share you know actual numbers if you if you want to but how do you think about kind of modeling the cost for a user in this going from just con, you know not just containers but going from containers to now adding on models as well Let, let's put it this way the state of ai report that you saw you know published in our blog like a few days ago uh that kind of growth we're also experiencing that in our ai features we have more users that want to use AI. They, the moment they find it useful, they use it way more extensively than we expected. And then literally Ghostwriter becomes their favorite pair programmer, helping them to be as productive as possible. Uh, that comes with a price because, of course, especially when you use third-party models, you're not being charged by how long you keep a server up and running. You're charged by traffic. Um, so I would say... 
if I gave you a detailed answer today, I might have to deprecate it in two weeks because that, that's, a, that's a constantly moving target. So we, we try to adapt to that. Uh, we try not to, to be like financially responsible, but not to obsess too much about cost because the, the, the landscape is changing constantly. And, you know, you have seen yourself open AI is lashing the, the API cost, uh, by like, Two orders of magnitude in the last, you know, eighteen months. Uh, so I expect those economies of scale to improve over time. For now, it's more let's learn to build AI products useful to our rapid users, and then we try not to bankrupt. And you know, we we have good margins yet. And then the moment they become even more widespread than they are right now, and it makes sense to have our own models rolled out everywhere for economies of scale, we're going to work on that. But uh, it, it's interesting to be in a rocket ride that goes so fast, but it comes with some additional headaches of sizing the, the, the load and the usage correctly. Yeah. So does that kind of cash out? I think this is where most people end up being. If somebody's paying, then it's all good. You don't really have to worry about it. You're going to make money. You might, you'll make more on some and less on others, but... I'm not, I'm not sure if I agree with that. Like It, it depends on what you're exposing. If you give them, uh, say, GPT-4, and there are power users, you can quickly start to lose money on that specific user uh, just after a few days. And that's, that's the same reason why, like even OpenAI, when you're a ChatGPT pro subscriber, they limit the amount of GPT-4 messages you can send. I think they just bumped it up, doubled it this morning, if I remember correctly. But you know, we are still in this realm of scarcity. And the scarcity applies to any user, even outside of OpenAI. So it's it's not that trivial to come up with a proper pricing uh, when there is powerful AI involved. Yeah, interesting. So you can lose money on a small percentage of paying customers. Presumably the average is still healthy. And then the real challenge that you kind of alluded to earlier is how in the hell might we extend AI features to you know 20 million plus non-paying customers? Correct. <laughs> So we're gonna you know, approach that problem gradually. I think we might we be starting from code completion, which is easier. We own the models and we learn how to deploy it uh, very efficiently. So I see a near-term future where we can make that happen. Now putting something at the level of GPT-4 or Gemini in front of users, or every users for free, uh, that that's gonna take a while, I'm quite sure. No matter how fast is the progress on the like inference frameworks, and even if NVIDIA slashes the cost of H100s by 90%, which who knows if it's ever gonna happen, uh, it's gonna take a while until we're there. But models might become much smaller and cheaper to serve if someone comes with the next amazing architecture. So who knows? <laughs> yeah, do you think of pushing inference to the edge in the near term? Like, could you get your code complete? to i don't know if you can get through the browser all the way to you know the the apple silicon for example um presumably in a mobile app you could but it, is that a is that a direction you're thinking of pushing we've been brainstorming exactly about that maybe in, not in the way you described it but uh, we are thinking of ways of either doing that on the edge or doing that in the context of a REPL. So with the, with the limited amount of resources assigned to every container, can we also run a smaller model that gives you like a basic code completion? Uh, so these are all directions we're exploring, especially because uh, you might have seen that 
There are quite a few local plugins with our rapid code we want to be model where people are doing a local copilot basically. They take a VS Code extension, they take GGM out to serve the model on their MacBooks, and they get pretty amazing speed of completion, like on par with what we have on, on the website. Um, and they run their own version, their private version of Copilot. So we know it's already happening with you know, a powerful laptop. So imagine that we should be able to make that happen in the, in the near future with even more, less powerful hardware. On the near-term roadmap for Replit, anything you want to kind of tease that you think people will be excited about? You mentioned more agentic uh, assistance, for example. Yes. <laughs> Ghostwriter is going to quite a lot of work under the hood. You know, we're very excited when we started a you know, brand new uh, internal effort to make it not only more powerful, but also way more integrated with the IDE. So you will literally start to see Ghostwriter everywhere across Republic, helping you on several different tasks. Uh, so that, that's the first you know, teaser that I, I would love to give. And the second one, as I, as I already teased before, um, we aren't done with uh, the first LLM that we release. You know, we, we plan to be on a semi-regular schedule of releasing new open source models, more powerful ones. We, we got so much benefit out of releasing that and you know, so much community uh, gathering around us and also like, giving us back help and like Easter tuning data sets, for example. We've been seeing quite a bit of them being contributed. Uh, that we want to keep working in that way for for a while longer. So these are the the, the two main teasers I want to share in this podcast. Zooming out to this concept of live players that I've mentioned a couple times, Amjad, CEO of Replit, is um, notorious in my mind. I don't know how many people pay attention to this stuff like I do. Probably not many. Uh, but he's tweeted a couple times something along the lines of, Replit is the perfect substrate for AGI. I kind of have to squint at that to try to figure out what it might mean. But I do, you know, and if, if I think about like, what would like a self-propagating AI system need to, you know, what, what kind of, in what kind of environment would a self-propagating AI system thrive? I think about something like Replit as being, you know, pretty natural growth medium, perhaps. Is that something that you've kind of talked to, talked to him and said, hey, let, maybe let's not tweet about that anymore? Or do you have a sense for like, is there a vision there for what it would mean for Replit to actually be the substrate for AGI? I mean, Anjad and I definitely uh, chat about this pretty much every time we, we meet and we have a chance. So I, I think it's more about talking about the future of the company and where the, where the field is going rather than about what we should be doing on the short term. That being said, I don't know exactly, first of all, what they had in mind when he tweets, because Amjad is a very prolific Twitter user. So, <laughs> Yeah, you can't track every tweet, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I get these notifications, so I try to read everything, you know, but I, I can't uh, pick his brain. That being said, I, I agree with that specific tweet, and I will give you this my interpretation. The reason why, you know, I, I would say a lot of the community today believes that LLMs are not the only way towards AGI is that no matter how good is the word model that they create internally, uh, it's still very limited. You know, sometimes it lacks common sense, it lacks like an, an, an understanding, like it doesn't do well spatial reasoning and many other shortcomings. So there are a lot of research 
uh, labs and a lot of institutes working on that on a, on a full time. And you know, I'm sure we're going to be seeing um, a lot of progress. Now, that being said, Rapid can become a substrate because you think about yourself as a developer. You don't, only, you don't write everything from scratch. You use resources that are available out there. You use cloud computes. You use services, you use APIs, you use tools. The way I see an AGI is something that behaves exactly in the way we do as developers. It knows what to use. It knows what to orchestrate. That's what I explained in the ADI, um, you know, in the Rapid AI manifesto when I described the AI, like a, an AI that not only is capable of building things from the ground up, but is rather also very skilled at picking and choosing what to use. So Rapid becomes a substrate even in the future when we have an AGI, because regardless, it doesn't make sense to generate everything from scratch. It makes sense to know what to use. So that's the reason why I believe approaches like AutoGPT or BBAGI are not have, have not you know materialized AGI yet. I, I don't want to comment on how powerful or limited they are. I think I'm always glad when people do experiments because we learn out of them. But like there seems to be a clear button like there because GPT-4 can't materialize intelligence out of nowhere. You know it can materialize tools and software and cloud compute. Uh, so Rapid becomes that, I believe, you know, once you have an AGI, it understands, oh, I can invoke this API from OpenAI. I can call this tool that is being deployed on Rapid. I can get CPU power there. I put everything together and I accomplish a certain task. So that's that's like the way I interpret the tweet. And I, I do believe that Jad is aligned on, on this, but you know, next time we have a chat, I will let you know. As you survey the scene, I think obviously you're somebody you know with Google and Replit uh, on your resume now who has demonstrated good taste in AI companies. Who else do you see as super influential, possibly, yeah, and you know in a position to really shape the future? I'm kind of struck by the fact that I have this list of you know 10, 12 companies that I'm like these companies seem to be the ones that actually might you know, come up with something that really changes the world. And outside of that, I don't see too many, but, you know, is there any that you would add to my list? Anybody you think that I should be watching that I'm not, you know, maybe not currently watching? I don't know if you have perplexity AI in that list. Um, if you don't, I would recommend to add it. I love what they're doing a lot. They seem to be like an early stage rapid in terms of uh, velocity of uh, delivering new features. Apart from the fact that, of course, you know, the team is amazing and they have a lot of experience, but they're attacking such a ambitious problem in a field that, of course, as a large player that has been dominating for like 20 plus years. Uh, so, but you know, I admire their boldness in going in that direction. I think they're executing very well and I'm very curious to see where they're going to be going. So that's a, that's a company that I keep on my radar. And sometimes I chat with Arwin, their CEO, to get some inspiration. Um, yeah, that's the first one that came to my mind. I mean, I, I talk with a lot of founders. I don't want to, I, I might, you know, mention another 10 of them that, that I also like, you know, but I, I, I feel some like connection with the perplexity story because I, I see them growing like at the same speed that Rapid did. And that's inspiring. This has been amazing, Nathan. And great questions. You know, thanks for, for making this happen. I think we've been talking for one hour and 40. I didn't even realize. But yeah, it was a pleasure to be a guest in your podcast. Well, thank you very much for making it happen. We appreciate all the time. I'm a huge fan. Michaela Katasa, thank you for being part of the Cognitive Revolution.